0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4 Z in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show...
1: I suppose it just gives more choice for people if they don't have a GP in their area and they won't have to travel as far. Or
0: some people just
1: feel at telehealth consults more anonymous.
0: Sexual Health Victoria will now offer medical abortion services via telehealth, with the option to receive
2: the medication via
0: POST. Also,
2: Māori people, which I would assume would be the same for all indigenous populations, you have a strong sense of connection that already exists through what we call whakapapa or through genealogical links.
0: New research suggests the tight-knit aspect of indigenous communities could be vital to inform improved public health policies. And later today...
3: Well, there's 12 animals in the Chinese zodiac, of which, interestingly enough, the dragon is the only mythical creature amongst those 12 animals.
0: Thousands will gather tomorrow across Australia as festive celebrations and events kick off, marking the start of the Lunar New Year. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, New South Wales has become the second state in Australia to ban the use of spit hoods after legislation passed through Parliament yesterday evening. Prison rights campaigners have long called for a nationwide ban on the use of the spit hood, describing the device as archaic and inhumane. The wise Eduardo
4: Jordan has more. New South Wales has become only the second state behind South Australia to ban the controversial hood. The mesh bag is placed over the heads of detainees to prevent them from spitting or biting. Assistant Attorney General of New South Wales Dr Hugh McDermott introduced the bill and told National Radio News Georgia Fisher, the state is demonstrating leadership.
5: New South Wales needed to lead the country to, pr- to show that we do not believe in using Spitwoods. we don't use them in New South Wales, and the rest of the country should also follow suit and put in legislation to make sure they are never used in any of our prisons in Australia anymore.
0: So is that why you introduced the bill?
5: Yes, the, the key was to provide leadership, to guarantee that they were not to be used in New South Wales today or any time in the future, but also to lead uh, the other states in the country by banning spithoods.
0: Um, your counterpart, Janelle Safin, um, she's a member for Lismore, is on the record saying that mm-hmm. the practice is simply inhumane. What's your take on that?
5: Oh, the, the practice is absolutely inhumane. Uh, it has no real effective purpose. There is other better ways to deal with uh, people spitting or releasing bodily fluids towards law enforcement officials and corrective services. Um, I find it it's an abhorrent and can lead to the death of those which have been put into the spit hood.
4: Advocates welcome the news South Wells' decision to ban the spit hood and expect the rest of the states follow suit. Member for Van coalition, Latoya Toya Aroha Rule, was in state parliament last night, and I started asking her reactions at state parliament.
6: So last night, being in New South Wales parliament, actually in the president's gallery, seeing this bill pass, was so exciting. It feels like there is momentum, that there is impact happening in Australia, particularly around the issue of abolitionists non-reformist reforms that, yeah, are are literally anti-torture reforms. So we know that in Australia this issue has been complicated in the past, but I do feel like there is moments for us to
4: grasp right now moving forward. For those who are unfamiliar with this, why are speed hoods inhumane and dangerous to use? So Spit Hoods have been called out
6: by human rights organisations, the United Nations Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture, um, Amnesty International, of course a collective of members from our national band, Spit Hoods Coalition, uh, for their human rights implications around the issue of torture. They have been seen as dehumanizing, degrading, leading potentially to harm and death of people across the world, let alone in Australia. And they actually can cause things like asphyxiation, which we know as suffocation, given their implementation over the head and secured around the neck. So they're very restrictive and there is just no safe way to use this device.
4: So, what's the work from Ban Spit Hoods Coalition behind this new ban in New South Wales?
6: So, after our success of Fellows Bill or the Statutes Amendment Prohibition on Spit Hoods Bill in South Australia in 2021, we formed the National Ban Spit Hood's Coalition to continue this work, knowing that although South Australia set a precedent in Australia and indeed the world, it is not enough for us to allow the banning on spithoods by law but also the use of them upon other people. We know that spit hoods are used disproportionately against First Nations people, particularly First Nations children in the Northern Territory
4: and particularly upon people with mental health issues. In the Northern Territory, Opposition Leader uh, Leah Finociario has said she wants their spit hoods back in youth detention, but she claims safety for law enforcement staff. What are other ways they can do to be safe while doing the job and not using these speed hoods?
6: So we as the National Ban Spit hood Coalition absolutely stand in support of all people's rights at work. We believe all people have the right to feel safe and be safe at work. But we also know that something like spit hoods do not protect against spitting. They do not protect against transmission. We actually believe that corrections and police officers and others do have the right to feel safe. And for that reason, we know that they use and should have access to adequate PPE, which is personal protective equipment.
4: Latoya, News at Wales is joining South Australia, as you mentioned, in this ban. What's the advocacy work the coalition will be doing to ban this nationally?
6: So we really hope and expect other jurisdictions to follow suit and to continue from South Australia and now New South Wales into the future. We call on all parliamentarians to continue to consider legislating this ban.
0: That was Ban Spithood's coalition member, Latoya araha speaking with The Wires' Eduardo Jordan. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. Sexual Health Victoria will now offer medical abortion services via telehealth with the option to receive medication via post the new service aims to address current barriers like limited access to and availability of medical abortion services and medications, especially for those living in regional and rural Victoria. The Wires' Joelle jessa spoke to the Medical Director of Sexual Health Victoria, Dr Cathy McNamee, to learn more about the
7: service.
1: So we're based in Victoria. We're a fairly broad-based organisation that provides general sexual health services. We do do a number of things, but they include contraception, like IUDs, implants, medical abortions. And as you know, we've recently launched a a telehealth medical abortion service. We do sexually transmitted infections, um, PrEP. We've got a small transgender service, menopause, vulva, that, that's probably a reasonable scope. You know, we do some general sort of gyny oh, sort of stuff like bleeding problems, period pain.
7: Could you clarify what medical abortion is and who it is available to?
1: Yep. So medical abortion is, it basically brings on a miscarriage. A person has to be nine weeks or under at the time that they take their tablets and usually we need an ultrasound to, to check how far along that the pregnancy is. And with the two lots of tablets, the first one sort of blocks the hormones that would allow pregnancy to occur. And it also enhances the action of the second tablets. And the second tablets basically cause the womb to sort of contract and bring on a miscarriage.
7: And what will the new telehealth and medication delivery service look like?
1: Well, I suppose the advantage is that people don't have to Come in to have the service, you know, for people who are sort of living in remote areas, or well, we don't have remote, it's just for people in Victoria. We don't have any remote areas in Victoria, but sort of, you know, out of rural areas, or um, people who just don't have a doctor in in their area who who provides the service. So we we feel it would be an advantage for those people. And some people just like the privacy and some people are very busy and it's just easier for them to do a telehealth rather than, than come in for an appointment. Mm.
7: What barriers aside from access for those living more remotely have previously it, existed?
1: Look, I, I think that the main the main barrier has been access and cost. Like the the, the services vary enormously like sometimes you can get a bulk bill service, but sometimes there's going to be an out of pocket cost of a couple of, you know, at least a couple of hundred dollars, maybe even up to, you know, about four hundred dollars. So it, it it just it depends on what people want to charge for the service.
7: The Sexual Health Victoria CEO said that recent findings revealed only one in ten GPs in Australia actively engage in prescribing abortion medications. How will telehealth appointments affect this?
1: Well, I suppose it just gives more choice for people if they don't have a GP in their area and they won't have to to travel as far. Or some people just feel that telehealth consults are more anonymous in some ways for them. Um, They might feel it confronting to come in and see someone. So it could be an advantage for those people.
7: Yeah, right. And how will the medication delivery be especially beneficial for those living regionally?
1: Well... I mean, some people will actually choose to use their local pharmacy if they want to, but often people, if they live in a small community, they're, they're not happy to access their, their local pharmacy, so we, we can organise for it to be de- delivered to them directly through Express Post. I mean, we couldn't have them being very close to the nine weeks at that stage in case that the tablets didn't arrive, um, but... Yeah, or, or some people just don't have a pharmacy. That, like, they might have a doctor that they prescribe, but they, they have to travel quite a distance to actually get the tablets. So we feel that'll be an advantage to some people.
7: Was there anything else you'd like to add to that?
1: I think that's the main thing. You know, we're, we're sort of hoping to make it a, um you know, a friendly service. We've done a fair bit of telehealth during COVID. So I, I, I suppose we're, you know... We, we feel we know what we're doing, so hopefully it'll be yeah. good service for people, that people will feel really comfortable with.
0: That was Medical Director of Sexual Health Victoria, Dr Cathy McNamee, speaking with The Wires, Joelle Gisiderson. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A study into the social response of Māori peoples during COVID-19 suggests the tight-knit aspect of Indigenous communities could be vital to informing improved public health policies. The research from Charles Darwin University and Auckland University of Technology, focused on the remote subtribe of Ngati Kahanunu, and explored the ways Māori adapted during COVID 19 by turning to family connection and the revival of traditional practices. The Wire's Emma Watsky spoke to lead author and CDU associate professor Diane Weeper about what sparked the study.
2: I was approached by a prominent female elder in New Zealand. There was an issue within her tribal region. There needed to be a focus to help access health services. They had an issue with connectivity, so that was the initial approach, and research seemed to be a good way to do that.
8: I understand it also focused largely around social responses to COVID-19. What were some of the main differences in terms of those responses between indigenous Maori communities and non-indigenous communities?
2: For Māori people, which I would assume would be the same for all indigenous populations, you have a strong sense of connection that already exists through what we call whakapapa or through genealogical links. There's like a cultural obligation to honour those connections from the ancestors through to people that are here today and so that seems to be the theme that runs through the findings with the participants is that strong sense of needing to honour the past to help inform the future. So that pushes the focus on staying connected and helping each other.
8: And what has COVID-19 revealed about the importance of Indigenous knowledge along with the experiences specific to Indigenous communities?
2: this particular tribal area, their marae or traditional meeting house that had burnt down many years ago. And with the Maori culture, usually the sense of belonging connects to a marae or a physical structure, a building. And with COVID-19, the community felt they actually couldn't gather anymore to one place to try and support each other. So they had to come up with other ways of, and innovative ways of staying connected. So they would actually use the school, local school, to gather or connect in with the younger generation to use their mobile technologies to connect with each other so... One of the positive outcomes from COVID was that the traditional ways of being and gathering food and all of those customary practices were revisited because the young people found that they had more time to be with the older people and learn the traditional ways of hunting and gathering.
8: Did you find that there was a merge between the modern ways of connecting that helped to emphasise traditional ways of connecting?
2: The sense of what we say in Maori culture tanga or relationship building is an enduring principle that maintained even with colonization and so the participants were able to use the modern technology i guess to maintain that sense of who everyone was so to check up on say the elderly people they, they developed a, a system with using technology like with the phones or they would use the zoom or skype in the local school Later on, when I did a follow-up interview with the folks, there was a cyclone in the region, Cyclone Gabriel, in the hometown. The internet and the phones were out, and the electricity were out for several days. People, when they went to try and access health services in particular, they had trouble with the language and having to manually tell the health providers their health number, their name, their address. So that's the next phase. I'm wanting to look for funding for people to have some sort of technology that doesn't rely on connectivity so when the internet's down and the phones are down, they can still have a way of identifying themselves, especially when they need to find health services.
8: And what other ways could the findings from this this research inform future health policies for these Indigenous communities?
2: You know, when you really listen to the voices and the stories of the people that are most affected, you can hear the solutions. So I think there's a lot to be learned from really engaging with people. Just real simple things around making sure People check in on each other and there's that sense of knowing who your neighbours are, you know, things like that. So not always relying on government to step in. So that resilience really came through. The internal resources were quite astounding that people were able to work with what they had. And I think when you look at the literature, Indigenous populations are always worse off when there is a disaster. They can either be forgotten or they're harder to access because of their remoteness, language barriers, things like that. The digital divide is still a concern that we found. So the remoteness, I think sometimes the telco companies and the government can forget that people that are on lower incomes rely on the lower level internet connections because they may just use text messaging and don't use smartphones. And so sometimes when they're asked, they're trying to find a service, the answer is, "We'll go online" or "There's an app for that." I think we just assume. Everyone knows how to use the internet. So that definitely is something I think we need to be mindful of. Just lastly,
8: on that note, historically, what can be said about the broader impacts of global pandemics on Indigenous communities? How were they affected differently and and what are the possible flow-ons
2: from that? The leadership from the Māori people was quite amazing. The culture is so used to providing to others that's ingrained in the culture.
0: That was Associate Professor Diane Weeper there, speaking with The Wire's Emma
4: Watsky. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme.
0: Thousand years of tradition will come to life in cities and towns across Australia tomorrow with the start of celebrations for the Lunar New Year. The Bendigo Chinese Association have marked the Lunar New Year since the 1800s, when Chinese men walked over four million miles through hazardous terrain from South Australia. To reach the Victorian goldfields, National Radio news reporter Remy Norton spoke with the president of the Bendigo Chinese Association, Doug Lagoon, about their celebration plans.
3: Bendigo being have a, well, having a very unique Chinese culture and heritage because the heritage of dragons in Bendigo dates back to that uh, involvement of the Chinese community with the Bendigo affair, and the first a dra- first dragon appeared in 1892. Of course. In those days, the social celebrations of Lunar New Year were probably contained within what was known as, the, like the Chinese camps, as they were at the day. Uh, and then, of course, after they, the Chinese moved out of the goldfields camps, they moved into that area of Bridge Street in Bendigo, where they, you know, they practiced their, their culture and ran their businesses and so forth. But of course, as time has gone on, the community is being you know, much more ingrained in the fabric of society in Bendigo and we celebrate openly Lunar New Year pretty much every year and have done for a couple of decades. So it's, uh, it's a fantastic thing today to see and, and of course this year being the Lunar New Year of the Dragon we're going to take the opportunity to bring out one of our retired Imperial Dragons and put on a great show for the people of Bendigo and surrounds.
8: How have the Lunar Year celebrations changed from when it first started in Australia?
3: Look, I think probably now their learning year has been embraced by not only Asian cultures, but by the Aussie culture, yeah, Aussie culture as well. So, you know, we know that yeah, certainly in Bendigo, we, we get significant uh, people come to view our celebrations and participate. In Melbourne, across the different Chinese groups in Melbourne, there's some large uh, learning year ce- celebrations which are very, very well attended, and, and it's something which is a highlight of the. The Chinese calendar,
8: and why is this year called the year of the wood dragon?
3: Well, there's 12 animals in the Chinese zodiac, and of which, interesting enough, the dragon is the only mythical creature amongst those 12 animals. And it's the fifth fifth animal in the, in the zodiac, and the dragon is you know quite often associated with you know with the emperors of China being a you know a protector of, the, of high-ranking people. Dragons are known as talented, you know, strong, vigorous, benevolent, all sorts of things. So they're very, they have a broad spectrum of appeal.
8: During COVID, Chinese Australians experienced a lot of racism. How do you think these celebrations educate the wider Australia?
3: Yeah, for sure, I know we were very disappointed ourselves during that COVID period. Of time. By and large, the Binnigo Chinese Association is descendants of Chinese from the Gold Rush and, and later. Uh, And we do have newer arrival Chinese with us, you know, from Malaysia and Beijing, etc. But it was very disconcerting to see that, you know, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, we're fairly sure it was like a, you know, minority, but um, it was disconcerting. Shades of things which have happened in the past, you know, going back to, you know, the late 1800s, 1800s, and, you know, the the 1900s with the White Australia policy. So very disappointing.
8: Are these events or are events like this helping to foster closer ties or better understanding of the Chinese culture in Australia?
3: Yes, I I certainly believe so. We're very lucky in Bendigo though because we've had that long unbroken link of Chinese involvement in community. Even as far back as 1856, so we're talking nearly 170 years ago the Chinese community of the Goldfields donated money to the building of the first hospital in Bendigo, which was built in 1857. They continued that, as I said, more formally in the 1870s by joining with the East Fair and raising funds. So there's been quite, you know, in Bendigo's terms, generally a, a great acceptance of the, of the work that the Chinese have done within the community. And we, as an organisation, have kept that going, you know, through to the present day. So I think uh, in Bendigo, our Chinese uh, association and our activities and the maintenance of our unique heritage is very highly regarded. And I think that's given Bendigo quite a good springboard into the you know, acceptance over, of multiculturalism over the years.
0: Doug Lagoon from the Bendigo Chinese Association there, speaking with National Radio News' Remy Norton. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Yuguruk countries on which this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4 z in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary Kate Hannigan. As always, thank you so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.